This is Thoughts from the Metal Cavern, where only one opinion matters, and it's not yours. Hi there everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. And today it's a special episode, and a rather lengthy one compared to what I normally do. And it's Easter for me, and wherever you are in the world, if you're listening at the same time, well it's still Easter for you, because it's Easter at the same time everywhere around the world. And that's an amazing thing when you think about it. And so people will be out there going to church, doing fun stuff like that, and I hope they really enjoy themselves. But for me, what I do at Easter every year is I watch a particular movie, and that movie is Monty Python's Life of Brian. And I've been watching this now for over 40 years uh, at different times and different amounts each year, but generally at least once every year. And I know fair slabs of this movie off by heart still. And I grew up with it through high school and have all of my friends who knew it as well. And we would use lines from this film, and we still do, to do that too today um, in different situations. So what I'm going to do in today's episode is give you a running commentary of the film as I watch it. So, of course, we all know that DVDs in this day and age often come with uh, commentary tracks from the actors in the film or the directors, and they explain what's going on in the film at the time and what was happening while they were either acting in it or directing it or all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to do something like that, and I'm going to talk my way through the film and... Uh, Obviously, you know, tell you what parts I enjoy the most. Uh, some interesting information that I've gathered over the years from reading and watching several documentaries on this film and the characters and the, and the Monty Python troupe. And even tell you about stuff where it corresponds to what happened in my life and when I saw this the first time and all that kind of stuff. So it's a long shot that I'm expecting anybody to actually listen to this all the way through. What I am proposing is that you watch the movie with me as I, as I talk through and we can sync up at the right time, hopefully, if uh, I'll give you a, 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 a prompt as to when to start the film in the next bit. And uh, perhaps you can sit there and watch it and listen to me ramble on about it rather than watching the film. Now, obviously, watching the film itself without me rambling on would be preferable and more enjoyable. But perhaps just for a change, maybe you'd like to change it up a little bit and listen to me ramble on about stuff that will have something to do with the film and then other parts that will have nothing to do with the film. If that grabs you, I hope you'll hang around to after our intro music and uh, get your pause button ready to unpause the film right at the start of the film and we can go side by side. And um, maybe, maybe we'll all just learn a little bit more about life itself. As we watch The Life of Brian, right here on today's episode of Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. Alrighty, you ready? Because this is where we're going to go. This is the start. This is what we're going to press. We're going to press start. We're going to go from now, uh, an hour and 33 apparently, 
let's see how we go. And ready? Because everyone's got to press play at the same time if you want to listen to this at the same time. Or if you're in your car, just listen to me talk. Well, it doesn't matter. But if you're at home and you want to follow the movie as I do it, here we go. Ready? We're pressing play now. Alrighty, and away we go. I'll just try and keep the volume down a little bit so that we don't have to listen to all this kind of crap the whole time. And yes, we're seeing a few stars arrive, as we do at the start of the movie. There's a bit of ahs, and away we go with the star. There we go, the great north star, or whatever the star was. What was the actual thing with that when it came to Jesus and the stuff? They followed the sign, didn't they? They followed the star across the sky to... Come on. And then someone tried to tell us that it was a bloody a comet. Actually, there was a really good science fiction story that was written about this. Uh, and I can't remember who it was by it was about, but it was basically about, and I'll talk this as the three wise men are walking in. Um, it was about in the future where people went and discovered this planet, not from Earth, but from another place. And they discovered that the planet had been decimated because the star had been exploded and the star had exploded and it ended up being the star that the three wise men followed across the desert to find the birth of baby Jesus. And the person on the planet had actually sort of thought about why did God in all his wisdom wipe out this planet and the people who lived there with such amazing technology in order to that his first or his only son was actually brought to earth. It's a really good story. I really should uh, find that for you before the end of this, but I can't see that happening. Um, but I always love that story. So here we go. Ah, Terry Jones has arrived as, <laughs> as the mother of, well, not Christ, of course. It's, it's, it's Brian, but we have the three wise men. I love how, again, here we have uh, the three wise men. Two are white and one is obviously in blackface, which is uh, a terrible thing in this day and age. Um, apparently, if you unless you want to call me woke or call people who uh, woke about that kind of stuff, uh, how are you going to call one of the three wise men woke? Anyway, they've arrived and they've got the gifts. And of course, uh, Brian's mother here is trying to kick them out. Terry Jones was so good in this role, wasn't he? I mean, he played women so well throughout the whole of Monty Python. <laughs> and then we have this role where he plays... The mother of Brian, um, the uh, the saviour, and uh, he's just so brilliant. And it's such a, a terrible thing that he's no longer with us and, and the way that he eventually passed away from dementia and all that kind of stuff. Brilliant in this role. <laughs> so here we go. It's, it's the life of Brian, as we know. And of course, this opening scene is just so fabulous, isn't it? Because... The three wise men have arrived, obviously, for the birth of Jesus, and they have come into this tent. And of course, it's uh, it's not actually uh, Jesus at all. His name is Brian. Uh, we worship you, O Brian, uh, and of course, we bring the the gifts, the wonderful gifts, as as told to us by the Bible, <laughs> the the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, uh, and Terry Jones's eventual once he gets to this point. Uh, the uh, how much he enjoys two of those and perhaps not one of the other. And um, obviously, you know, as we know, with the life of Brian at the time, it was just uh, it's fairly controversial within the church because they felt that they were mocking Jesus, whereas 
the Pythons obviously said that they weren't doing that at all, uh, that they were actually, uh, in, in essence, sort of showing that he was a, a terrific or a great man, I say at the time. That's because that's what they'd say. I can't say that. Here it is. <laughs> Sorry. And, of course, we've just seen uh, the three wise men realise that uh, Brian is not the saviour. It is just around the corner there. We have Mary and Joseph there with the halos and the baby Jesus. And they've taken their gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they've gone to the actual saviour. And now we have the opening titles, which, to be honest, as, as, as fun as they are, the first couple of times you've seen them, uh, you think, yeah, okay, and this is almost a fast-forward thing. So that allows me to talk, I guess, more than that anything else. So let's talk about the first time I saw this film. And it happened to be when we went to Luton in New South Wales, and we stayed at a, uh, a friend of the family's, and the father of that family, uh, whose name is also Brian, as it turns out, um, was very much a Monty Python fan, and, and his sense of humour sort of went in that way. And we went down here this particular year, and um, at the time, one of these newfangled VCR things had happened, and he also had a copy of Monty Python's first film, first major film, really, uh, which, of course, was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And we watched that, well, I think I watched that about four or five times on this particular weekend we went down there. But this was on at the film, at the movies again, the cinemas, and I think it must have been not at the time that it was initially released, it must have been some time after this. It had either been uh, a re uh, revival of it or it had come back in because it was so popular. So we ended up watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail like I said, at least five times while we were down there, and then we went to the cinemas to watch this at the cinemas. And this must have been 1980 or, or, or 1981 or something like that. And, of course, I had loved The Holy Grail, uh, and then we went to see this, and it was just absolutely magnificent. And um, it's, it's hard to put into words when you first see a film that becomes so ingrained upon you. I mean, I, I would have watched this. I, you would say, like, if someone said to you, I've watched the film 300 times, you'd say, well, you're crazy. You can't have watched the film that many times. And I would have watched this this many times, I reckon, because I watched it time and time. Once we finally got a VHS copy, and then, of course, eventually it was a DVD copy and all that kind of stuff, I just watched it over and over and over again. I bought it on VHS. I think I'd recorded it on VHS before that. Uh, and it was just something I could easily watch and then could watch again. So now we get to the point here where we're about to go bang. Okay, so the ending titles are finished. So from the very start, this was just absolutely magnificent, and I've loved this film. And of course, I love all of Monty Python, but I guess this is still the high point, and it's for obvious reasons. So we come here to the Sermon on the Mount, which is what they're about to... Uh, the show here on the life of Brian and again as they've explained in many different uh, in uh, like autobiographies and in biographies of the time and interviews and that kind of stuff that this scene is not having a go at Christ or the Sermon on the Mount because they're actually pointing out all the great things that that Jesus said and all the wonderful things he said about humanity and, and there he is look hello <coughs> he's there telling us right now um, it is a white version of Jesus though and not what must have been the actual version of Jesus and his skin color at the time but let's not go beyond that 
So he's here giving the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, you know, as as has been said at different times, a wonderful thing. And then we have these people at the back who can't hear. And this fabulous conversation that goes on here now where, you know, speak up. <laughs> I can't hear anything he's already saying. And again, Brian's mother, Terry Jones, absolute star in that. And then we move to the people who are here, Michael Palin, who is Big Nose, of course, and Eric Idle, who goes on about saying, oh, Flumpy, if he calls me Big Nose again, oh, well, what do you have to say about that, Big Nose? Such a terrific scene, and so easily done, because we've incorporated Jesus, and we've seen that Jesus is up there giving the sermon, so he is not the person who this film is about. We have Brian here, who the film is about, and they've been shown straight from the very start of the film that they are two separate people, two separate entities. And that really should have taken all the heat out of this when it comes to the religious debate. And of course, in the long run, it did not do that, um, despite the fact that this has been shown to be the way. So blessed are the cheesemakers, of course. <laughs> it's not just the cheesemakers, it's obviously the purveyor of all uh, dairy products and whatever they call <laughs> Just fantastic, brilliant writing. <laughs> and now we have, oh, yeah, oh, big nose. <laughs> Just beautiful, isn't it? Honestly, how good are all these guys? And I think, honestly, the stars of the film, even though we have, um, we have Brian himself, who is Graham Chapman, who is fabulous in that lead role, Honestly, the stuff that Michael Palin does in his several roles and also that Eric Idle does, for me, are probably the starring parts of the film. As good as, and a good again, as good as John Cleese is in all of his roles as well. Terry Jones as, you know, as, as Brian's mother and, and the sort. And, and Terry Gilliam, who does his little bits and pieces, are fantastic as well. But I think Michael Palin and Eric Idle are just so good. Uh, so marvellous and the fact that they have done so much beyond the Monty Python stuff is a testament to not only their genius but also what they did in this film <laughs> and, and there we go nice work Michael Palin just thumped uh, his wife and of course Eric Idle once again gets out of it completely uh, fine and doing and now let's go to the stoning and isn't it brilliant that we can go from this particular first scene from the Sermon on the Mount and all this kind of stuff, and then we're going to go down and we're going to talk about the stoning <laughs> of the person who said Jehovah. Um, fantastic how they must have come up with these ideas, and then you can see how they are written as sketches, like just simple sketches that they've then been able to interwoven into the film itself, and probably better than they did with the Holy Grail. Now, the Holy Grail is much similar in that way. Obvious, there are obvious sketches that have been written and then they've had to put them into the story and that kind of thing. But when it comes to the filming of this and, and the actual writing of the film, it had to be almost seamless. And I think it absolutely is, except for one part that comes along at one stage, as we'll get to, uh, where Terry Gilliam does, does the uh, job of, um, as he did in the TV show, of getting from one point to another when there was no idea how to get there. Now, this is beautiful how we go here, and uh, we've got Eric Idle here selling the stones <laughs> to Brian and his mother and, and, and a packet of gravel. Because, I mean, you've got to get that packet of gravel. That's How wonderful is that going to be at the stoning, and how useless is it? Just beautifully done. And so here we are, they're going to turn up, and of course, women aren't allowed to attend, so of course they're all wearing the fake beards, which of course 
no one can notice. It's, and, you know, and the people who try to pull apart this, they're saying, oh, yes, but these women are here. And, um, you know, how can they not tell that they're women because of the fake beards? Well, have they noticed that most of the women here are actually men playing women who are pretending to be men? Just fantastic. And uh, John Clues here now rooting out <laughs> the problems <laughs> about being a blasphemer. <laughs> and the women are about to go, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and all I said, this piece of halibut <laughs> was good enough for Jehovah. <laughs> he said it again. <laughs> and are there any women here today? <laughs> Excuse me while I have a drink of my scotch here that I'm drinking while I'm watching this film. Ah, yes, and of course I have been drinking scotch before this as well. And in the hope that this would make this more amusing as I talk about a film that you could watch and get much more out of it by watching the film than listening to me actually talking about the film that I'm watching while you could possibly be watching this. Or of course you might be in the car listening to me ramble on about the film. Because surely if you're at home, you wouldn't be. You'd be watching the film. Anyway, let's not go there. <laughs> Who threw that <laughs> up to the back? <laughs> There's always one, isn't there? <clears throat> Just the lines from this film and all Monty Python films that we've all grown up watching. And then we use in everyday sort of stuff. <clears throat> and anyone who is listening to me ramble on here knows what I'm talking about. Right, who threw that? Who was it? Who was it? Uh, well, he did say Jehovah, and then they're going to throw the at him as well. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and no, no one's going to throw until I blow this whistle. Oh, I'm jumping ahead. I shouldn't be doing that. But we all know the lines. I mean, um, it was interesting when I was at high school, and uh, not so much with Life of Ryan as such, I guess, but with Holy Grail, certainly, where we... Uh, me and a few of my mates pretty much learned to do us all the way through. There we go. Let's get John Cleese in the back with the stones and a big one. <laughs> Got him, yes. <laughs> oh, it's just so good. Uh, anyway, we used to, we learned pretty much the whole of the Holy Grail all the way through, line for line. And I do remember on a bus trip we were going, I think it might have been to Canberra where uh, me and one of my best mates, uh, Kiro, we pretty much just quoted this whole movie all the way through um, on the bus to keep ourselves amused just because we could do that and we, for some reason, remembered that stuff, which is madness. So anyway, here we go. We move into the next part and now we've got uh, an old ex-leper, Michael Palin here, playing the ex-leper who Jesus had cured. <laughs> Oh, it's just so fantastic, because obviously at the time, this must have been the case, and, and and from my memory of reading the Bible and the story about uh, Jesus curing the lepers and that kind of stuff, um, you know, this kind of thing obviously happened a lot, but uh, here we go, Michael Palin, he's, he's been cured, cured me, sir, <laughs> and, uh, and he's just so brilliant, you know, what do you mean ex-leper? Who was it? Jesus did so. And Jesus cured me. <laughs> uh, Graham Chapman is just so fabulous. Isn't he? he just looks bewildered through most of the movie. And it, it does take a certain talent to be able to do that all the way through, to be, to be so completely bewildered in every scene he does. Um, now, 
of course, he had been an alcoholic up until this point, and uh, by this time he had given up uh, drinking, and so he was now uh, not drinking. So he, he played. He, this is the first role he sort of did, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, and obviously I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure from everything I've read that by the time they got to this point of filming this film, he was uh, he was no longer drinking, so he had to do this as an actor. And I do remember reading at one stage that obviously they were writing the film and the parts, and John Cleese was especially keen to play Brian, but the other members of Monty Python had said, well, no, Graham Chapman is the outstanding actor in the group, and he is the one who is going to play Brian, and so he did. And everything he does in this role is just perfect, and you, no one else could have, none of the other five Monty Python actors could have played this as well, because... He's so bewildered, he is so uh, adamant about certain things, but he's, he's always, <clears throat> um, he's, he's not <laughs> he's not the strong character, is he? But Graham Chapman plays him such that you, you feel sorry for him, and yet he also becomes the pseudo-leader, even though he has no desire to become a leader at all. <laughs> Uh, and now he turns out, he finds out that his father is is a, is a Roman, and of course he's, I'm not a Roman. So, again, Terry Jones, just fantastic here in the part of uh, Brian's mother, <laughs> just doing this beautifully. So, obviously I've now told you about where I first saw this film, and that we used to watch this a fair bit. It was once I got to high school, and came amongst what eventually became my main group of friends. It was amazing that everyone was a Monty Python fan and that everyone had seen this film and that everyone knew this film so well. Um, and this was, uh, you know, probably three or four years after it had been released. And yet, uh, somehow, us, us nerds had all gotten together and we'd all realised that uh, we loved the film and that we knew all the lines, we knew, <laughs> knew the characters. Uh, and that we were quite happy just to chant different parts of the film in the schoolyard for no particular reason at all. And that sort of was part of bringing our group together, I think. Uh, and it wasn't always the way. Um, but it's interesting that so many of us who were in that group eventually went on to do ancient history as well in year 11 and 12. And of course... Uh, when it came to Rome, and I remember, especially in Year Twelve, when we did Ancient Rome, we sort of more or less said, "Well, you know what we should do as a as a history experiment, we should all watch the life of Brian." Well, is that that's about Rome, isn't it? It's all about uh, not the Rome we were doing. <laughs> so anyway, what do you get? Anyway, back to the movie, and we've reached the Colosseum, and of course, Brian's here selling his wares, <laughs> his uh, exotic. Where's it going to relate to exotic Roman stuff as he's about to find out because we're about to come across the group of uh, revolutionaries that he is so keen to get involved in, especially for Judith, who is here played uh, in this group. Uh, this is a lovely scene, isn't it, where Eric Idle keeps saying, All woman, it's a, it should be this part for the old man, all woman, there it is, <laughs> and, and of every man, all woman, or whatever it is. <laughs> Why do you keep talking about women? Because I want to be one. <laughs> and to be honest, you think about this now, and and all the, the stuff that's happened in the world in the last five or six years when it comes to transgender and all that kind of stuff, that this scene at the time must have driven the church insane. 
because I want to be one. I want to be a woman and I want to have babies. You can't have babies. You haven't got a... Yeah. Got a worst. Where's the fetus going to gestate? <laughs> that must have driven the church and conservative type people absolutely insane when it was released, and it must do now. But I, this is the thing now: is that despite the fact that it was so ahead of its time, is that people were just there, just ah oh, yes, but that's from the seventies. Uh, it's dated. It's not. It's it's not relevant at all. But that's the point with all of Monty Python stuff. It's all still so relevant and so amazingly well done. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. And you know, what has this got to do with the with the whole film at all? It's got nothing to do with it. But they've decided to write this sketch, and they've said, right, well, how can we incorporate it as a part of this film, seamlessly incorporate it as part of the film, which is exactly what it's done. And yet, if you wanted to tear apart, you could say, well, you know, this part, this part, and this. You'd say, well, what has that scene got to do with the film? Surely it's not necessary at all. <laughs> it's got to do that his fact is a loony. And I love this part. Here we go. <laughs> We're going to come out. <laughs> this bloke's going to fight the matador. Or not the matador. The yeah, I mean, the big gladiator bloke. And uh, what are we going to do? We're going to go with the exact way that I would have dealt with this. We're going to run. And away we go. <laughs> and they're all booing oh god damn it's funny and then of course you know we're going to get to the end here he's just mucking around anyway here we come he's brian he's coming up to uh this little group here and he's oh, selling them their roman food <laughs> yeah sell some proper food that's right Oh, I'll have a thing of otters' noses. <laughs> I'm just getting another sip of my scotch here, if that's all right with everyone. <laughs> You're the Judean people's front. Fuck off. <laughs> the people's front of Judea. <laughs> oh, the Judean people's front. Splitters. <laughs> Oh, it's just so brilliantly well done. I mean, it's funny how you can run through the movie and if you watch Monty Python enough, and probably as well, if you read enough, of course, you can pick out who's writing each of these um, little bits and the little uh, the, the skits as you go along because of the way they're written and, and how the language goes in them. And it's... Uh, <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, dear, oh, dear. And there's so much, you know, that, oh, I don't know, sometimes, you know, like, Terry Gilliam in the TV show was obviously mainly the, uh, he, he did all the, the uh, animation and all that kind of stuff and the, and the bits between skits to join them up and whatever. He had certain acting roles, but not a lot. Uh, and the movies are the sort of the same thing. He doesn't always appear in one of these things. Yeah, there we go, Splitter. <laughs> and there we go. The gladiator's about to. Oh, I'm having a cardiac arrest. <laughs> so we're gonna have. We've got the hero. He's the he's the win. He's beaten him. <laughs> oh, fabulous! And then of course he would have been taken down and had his head cut off anyway. Um, all right, so. We're getting into the main part of the film now. We've got Brian, who's uh, discovered that his father's a Roman, even though he doesn't believe it. 
he wants to become part of this revolutionary uh, group. And of course, uh, Reg here is about to offer him a little uh, job to do, and that is going to be writing all over the walls <laughs> in Latin. And this is just fantastic. I mean, and because this had to be a Cleese Chapman skit, because writing um, Go Home Romans in Latin a hundred times on the walls here of the palace, uh, honestly, is is completely in their, their, their sphere of... of uh, their intelligence, I guess, and their upbringing and the the uh, study they did at university, the fact that you're going to do it in Latin and John Cleese explaining to Graham Chapman, you know, oh, do this part. And all these kids who grew up at the same age of them, obviously not us, but they would have all learned Latin in uh, high school or their equivalent and then into university. They all learned Latin and so... They had to know all of these variations of, of the, uh, the the words when they became plural and all this kind of stuff that uh, that John Cleese explains through this. And I'm not even going to try because it's just far too brilliant to even repeat. And I think for that generation, that must have been sort of, uh, that must have been the funniest part of it because here he is explaining to say, Romans go home. Oh, but that's not a thing. It's, a, it's not a suggestion. It's an order. So you're for, ordering them to go home. So you have to do something else and all that kind of stuff. And for all of us who didn't learn Latin, well, look, it's basically useless, isn't it? It's still funny because we understand what is going on, but we don't. Do it. But all these people who had to have learned Latin at school, surely for them it must have been hilarious, this whole scene. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Romani, right now, write it out a hundred times. <laughs> if you don't do it before sunrise, I'll cut your balls off. <laughs> right. Oh, and then we get to the point here in a second where, of course, he get does it all done, and then the other guard who's there, who's there, saying, "Right, no, don't do it again." <laughs> and then we get to the point where I think this is where we're getting to the point where uh, they do Terry Gilliam, and Terry Gilliam's used really well. So there's a lot of uh, excellent work when it comes to the history of this time. I mean, these guys obviously researched this period of time in history uh, very thoroughly while they were writing to make sure that everything sort of fit in place for the time of uh, the crucifixion and the death or life, depending on what you believe, of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's what I love so much about it. It's so authentic that it could be you know, Ben-Hur, all that kind of stuff. It's all of the same age. And uh, the fact that they put so much work into it, and then, of course, the film sort of moves along almost seamlessly, makes it a historical film, despite the fact that it's an obvious comedy, and it's obviously uh, talking about uh, the people of the time and the religion and the fact that the Romans were occupying half the world. Uh, but... That's the great part about it. It looks like a historical film such as Ben-Hur or The Ten Commandments or any of those other um, massive religious films that were made through the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, and just the fact that it's actually a comedy changes all that completely. So we have now Ryan's been rescued. Oh, look, there's Judith. She's pulled, her, pulled him in. 
and they're going to take him up to the meeting place where we're discussing going into pilot to, to kidnap pilot's wife another fantastic scene uh, it's just fantastic thank you sir thank you i've been nourished my bloody life story though pleasing some people that's just what jesus said sir So we've now arrived here where we've got <laughs> the meeting with Reg at the front and or at the table. And uh, of course, Eric Idle, Michael Palin here, he's offsiders. It's fist to the head to make sure that's there to be the, the signal of this group. And our father's fathers and our father's father's fathers and our father's 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 fathers. So we're going to get to the point here where we say, what have the Romans ever done for us isn't this just magnificent <laughs> i think about this <laughs> the aqueduct oh yeah yeah the aqueduct oh and then the you know, law and order and all this stuff. oh <laughs> list all the things that the romans have actually done <laughs> for everybody uh but you know this is we're still going to go and we're going to try and force them out by telling them to leave here and uh go back to rome just a brilliant sort of uh, script and a written piece as well. <laughs> when they say, oh, yeah, you remember that. Oh, I mean, they're the only ones who can keep law and order here. I mean, <laughs> let's face it, who could? <laughs> so we speak about all the great things that the Romans are doing. Uh, but we're still going to, yes, as I said, uh, we're, going to, we're going to take Ponto, uh, uh, Pilot's wife and uh, hold her for ransom. Have <laughs> <I> brought peace. <laughs> so here we go. Judith's about to bring Brian in and say that Brian's uh, succeeded in his mission, that Reg had absolutely no idea that was going to occur. And so now what are we going to do? Well, we're going to do other stuff, so... Lovely, lovely, lovely stuff going on. So we come to this movie and uh, you know, it, it's become a bit of an Easter tradition to watch this movie at, at Easter every year. Um, I mean, is there any reason for it? To be honest, the, the reason that I started doing it was because I had nothing to do at Easter except to try and fill in some time, which... I'm quite happy to have had that time <laughs> away from work and away from everybody else. But it becomes a bit of a problem when you have uh, so many people who are friends and family who say, well, on Good Friday, we've got to go to church uh, and we've got to do whatever it is. And then on Easter Sunday, we've got to go to church and we've got to do this and that kind of stuff. And anyway, I've got, unless you've only just worked out, uh, I don't have any religion in me at all. So... Uh, all of this to me is is a bit of a um, religion to me is a bit of a comedy, so obviously that's what becomes at this time of year. Everyone else go to church and we do the right thing and uh, we honour the fact that uh, Jesus Christ was crucified on the Friday and he, and he died and then he was risen three days later. Uh, well, what am I going to do to get around that? And to get around that, it's to watch this movie every year. Uh, I don't. As I said, when I was a kid, I watched this a thousand times, I suppose, 300 times, it would be fair. Uh, and I used to watch it a lot, but not as much anymore. 
there's so much going on in the world and uh, just in normal life without being able to watch things over and over again like I used to as a teenager and then in my early 20s. So it'd be, it's become an Easter tradition to sit down and watch this and I like to try and watch it with my family if they're around but they're not as enamoured necessarily with the movie as well uh, and also with the, uh, <coughs> the ideas of it and they'd rather be either playing the Xbox or doing stuff with their friends online or playing uh, other stuff so or watching other movies. So that's what everyone's doing right now, so that's why I'm doing this. So here you go. We've got uh, <laughs> the People's Front of Judea going in here and they are breaking into to Pilate's palace and they're going to take Pilate's wife, or so they hope, until they come along and come across the next people involved as well, which is just fantastic, uh, with the uh, accents, uh, <laughs> which obviously, surely, didn't exist in the day. Uh, but we're all sneaking in, and it's going to be very important because we're all really on the same page, but as it turns out, we are not on the same page. I loved before, too, how where where uh, Michael Palin's character was explaining what the actual plan was, uh, and of course they said, uh, Reg won't be coming with us because, of course, yeah, he can't do this. And uh, it seems to be that as all leaders of all uh, uh, political groups, uh, the leaders stay right out of things. They just plan things and then have their fingertips not on it at all. So here we have the confrontation now where we have the two groups coming to each other. Uh, Steel pilot's wife, wife and uh, make our demands. And what are your demands? And <laughs> I'm not telling you what our demands are. Excuse me, I just need to have another drink of my scotch. So, of course, now we're all going to kill each other and we're going to leave Brian alone. And, of course, Brian will then be captured. And so we can come to the next great scene of this film where Michael Palin uh, absolutely proves his massively amazing acting uh, chops. And I think that's the thing, is even though the group all believe that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Graham Chapman was the actor of the group, honestly, Michael Palin is the actor of the group. He's the one who could play any role. He can play the straight role, he can play the comedic role, and he could do it in the same role if he really needs to. And he has well and truly proven that in the years since this film was made, uh, and also with all of his documentary stuff that he's made as well, but... He's just such an amazing, uh, uh, he's, a, he's an amazing actor, but he's just an amazing person all up with everything he's done. Uh, read some of the books that he's read as well, which are just fabulous. Uh, and of course, uh, as we said, in, in different acting roles where he's been involved in, uh, and also the, those documentaries where he, uh, around the world in 80 days, and then he, he went to the Antarctic and he went from north to south and south to north and all that kind of stuff. He just does it all so easily, as a presenter as well. And uh, I mean, Graham Chapman may well have continued to be a terrific uh, actor if he hadn't uh, ended up, uh, well, passing away in 1989. But I still think this movie still proves how terrific Michael Palin is in his role. And of course, he's about to play uh, Pontius Pilate, and uh, that's going to be interesting for everybody. But of course, first we're going to come here to the jail where Brian's put in, and, and here is uh, Terry Gilliam playing one of his fantastic roles, the 
basically a non-speaking role. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, he's very good at that kind of stuff. Uh, and again, who do we have up here on the wall being the actor playing the person hanging up on the wall? Oh, it's Michael Palin. <laughs> you lucky bastard. You lucky, lucky bastard. He spat on me. Oh, what I wouldn't give to be spat on. <laughs> oh, my goodness, it's just fantastic, isn't it? How do, you, how do you come up with this sort of thing when you're writing this movie to come up with this sort of scene? So we've got Brian who's been captured. Uh, everything looks you know, dim for him. Everyone else has died that he's come in with. And he gets thrown into this cell. And then you have this sort of playoff between these two characters who's, you know, he's, he's not Michael Palin's character. has got nothing to do with the film. But he's here and the comic relief value of this, once again, just fantastic. You know, Brian's here and he's whinging and he's carrying on like a bloody girl. And yet Michael Palin's are here who's been hanging here for years and years. And they only hung me up the right way around last week. <laughs> and Brian's complaining about his lot. And this guy's just stuck in here. And oh, it's just it's just a really good scene in the way to show that despite all the stuff that's happening in Brian's life, which is obviously not very terrific, but there are a lot of people who still have it worse off than him. <laughs> and yet they seem to be taking it so much better than he was. <laughs> and his jailer. Oh, yeah, speed him again. Oh, bloody favouritism. <laughs> Oh, great race to Romans. Terrific. <laughs> uh, you'll probably get away with crucifixion. Crucifixion? Yeah, first offence. <laughs> oh, fantastic writing. And just, and again, just really well portrayed here by, by Michael Palin. Um, yeah, I, I can't say enough about him and... and the way that the, the two characters here change so much. Because, yeah, Brian is whinging a lot, complaining, and yet Michael Palin's character's obviously got it so much worse, but no, he's fine. Oh, just fine. Oh, good one, Centurion. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> and so now we're going to go off and we're going to meet uh, Pontius Pilate. And, of course, who wrote this? And who could have played this part better and, and done this better? I mean... There's no way in the world you could have made this role any funnier from every the way just from speaking this way, uh, and <laughs> of course you've got all the all the centurions around him who are you know trying to not laugh and the fact that uh, <coughs> excuse me <laughs> the fact that they're all uh, it's all done so beautifully oh, thrown to the floor throw into the floor oh yes very wafty. Uh, about quarter past three, yes. What's going Yeah, about 11, sir. Um, so, of course, Brian now here decides to try to explain that his father was a, a woman, you say. Ooh. And then, of course, uh, John Cleese's character just laughs at the fact because he said that his father's name, of course, is... Um, 
a very great friend in Rome called Bickerstickers. <laughs> yes. Oh, woman. And I throw him to the floor. And what was his name? What was his name? Nautius Maximus. Yes. I'd actually forgotten it was called Nautius Maximus. And of course, everyone here is now saying, oh, no, it's a made up name, sir. <laughs> like, uh, Bickerstickus. Oh, I have a very great friend in Rome called Bickerstickus. <laughs> He has a wife, you know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And the whole time, firstly, I don't know how John Cleese stayed straight-faced for so long. And, of course, one of these centurions here is Marty Feldman, who came in for this cameo a little bit. I think it was uncredited, as it turns out. And here he is now as we're talking. Uh, <laughs> oh, and he's going to get taken away, and it's all just... just a fantastically written scene. <laughs> yeah, oh, honestly, if you're writing this and you're coming up with it, uh, do you honestly, as you're writing it, do you think this is going to be one of the most famous scenes in a, a comedic movie history? Because it is. Especially this part. Would anyone like to have a little giggle? When I see the name Biggest Diggers. <laughs> You're just trying to hold it in. Oh my goodness. It's just, and it's so well done. And I don't know how many takes it took them to do it, but uh, Michael Palin's facial features and his, the way he uses his eyes and that kind of stuff while he's doing it is just magnificent. Just magnificent. He's hilarious. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, as we go along here, Brian's about to escape. And we're going to come to the escape scene where they're going to be chasing him. And then we're going to come to the point where, obviously, you would think someone had decided that we don't know where to go from here. We don't know how to get from this point to the next point of the movie, which is where we're going to find um, Brian coming back to uh, the room and still being alive. And so in the series, uh, in the Monty Python Flying Circus series, what they did was that they would write their, their jokes uh, and they would put them all together and then at the end of it they would say, Gilliam, being Terry Gilliam, gets us from this point to the next point, wherever the next, uh, next joke, next scene was going to be. And then Terry Gilliam would just come up with his animation and work it however he wanted to to get to the next point. And it's the same thing here because you know Brian's being chased up this uh, up the stairs here. Uh, he's obviously uh, going nowhere because we've got to the point where there is nowhere to go. He's being chased by here by the soldiers. They're going to get to the top. Brian's got nowhere to go. He's going to end up finding out that he's going to have to get captured or killed or whatever it is. And instead, he falls over and bugger me. A bloody spaceship turns up. <laughs> and you know what? Back in the day when I first started watching this, the first, let's let's say the first dozen times, I just laughed through all this part for, you know, it's 
ludicrousness and its ridiculousness and all that kind of thing. The fact that we've gone, we've got a historical film going on here, and then suddenly a spaceship has arrived out of nowhere. They've left Earth's orbit. They get into a battle, and they crash back on Earth exactly the same point, and then Brian gets out. Of course, he's alive. And we've got the poison down the back there who says, you lucky bastard. And after the first dozen times, I got to the point where I just thought, well, does this, for me, is this... Uh, not destroying the movie, but is this just sort of lessening the impact of the movie that, for me, because it is so ludicrous and so ridiculous and is an obvious callback to the Monty Python Flying Circus series in with Gilliam just finding a way to get from point A to point B. And, of course, as I've gotten older, I've just thought, well, but that's what it was. And in the long run, it did give Terry Gilliam the ability to really have his own mark on this part of the film because otherwise what would he have done here we go you lucky bastard and then suddenly oh the soldiers are chasing him again and we resume so could it have been done without that yeah it could have but for some reason they decided to bring that part into the film to lift the ridiculous part of, of the, the film itself and go where it wanted to go well, here we go. Now we've come in, and there's here's Terry Gilliam now giving us his um, wonderfully uh, absorbing <laughs> speech at the at the top of the top of his boxes here, as as many of these other well, they're not religious nuts necessarily, are they? This is, and I guess this is what the kind of thing that happened because you've got to accept the fact that if Jesus was uh, a a person of faith in those days, and he was obviously quoting his own scripture, or the scripture that he believed, then there would have been more people like him. And so this is what we've got here in this little section. Um, and I love this part. It's Michael Palin again, just here doing his little stuff. Here. Oh, he's forgot about this. It was just behind the sink. And, well, you know, there's something in the floor about quarter past four. It's actually half past two in the afternoon. And all. just really well done. And, of course, Brian's going to come along here in a second. He's going to start... Uh, standing up and start talking about people as well and begin his own quest for becoming a god or a prophet or any of those kind of things. But before that, of course, he's going to come across, uh, I think, we believe we're coming across Eric Idle here. How much for the uh, the beard? <laughs> yes, we are. Excellent. Here we are. Eric Idle, and who is the only person who could have written this sketch. And uh, here we go. How much? How much for the beard? Oh, and you've got to haggle. And isn't this just brilliant? Because you can't you can't just come in and just pay for something. And it's a bit like when you first go to Bali. And I'm sure most people here have been to Bali and they understand that you go to Bali and, and uh, you go to people in the shop and you say, well, how much is this? And uh, they tell you the price. And, of course, it's uh, an inflated price. And then you give your price, which is a very much underpriced. And then somehow you have to find a, a happy medium in the middle of what you're actually going to pay for. And this is exactly what this is. Like, Brian just wants the beard, which is amazing because he's, of course, already got a beard. Uh, but then he just wants to pay the 20 shackles. And, of course, uh, no. Eric Idle says, well, no, we have to haggle. And, you know, and of course, Brian doesn't know how to haggle. So just tell me, I just want to pay for it and take it. And uh, Eric Idle's here teaching him how to haggle. And then, of course... Coming up with a, what? <laughs> you can't believe it. Just beautifully done. And I think you could, this could almost have been ad-libbed by 
both. I mean, Brian, uh, Jerome Chapman would have just had to have gone along with this as Brian and just let Eric Idle do his bit and do his shtick and um, just carry on. And it's just so beautifully done because uh, he says, this is my final off, Adela. And then uh, Brian says, whatever it is, he says 15 or 14, which about, he says, done, sold. Uh, and then going to take the gourd as well. And, um, you know, don't worry about the gourd. That's same for the bros. What? Four? Four for this gourd? <laughs> mm. Sorry, I'm just finishing off my scotch as well. So we're back out in the middle there, and uh, Brian thinks he's gotten away. And, of course, he hasn't quite gotten away yet uh, as much as he would like to. There's one born every minute, of course there is. So now he's going to find his way back to the meeting, and of course uh, he's going to take the uh, soldiers with him, following him, they're going to find him, uh, take him to the secret lair, and of course Reg is not going to be happy about this at all. Yes, so what else is there to talk about? I mean, we could continue to talk about it, but you're either watching it with me as we're going, or you've watched this before and you're listening to this... Um, we're into the uh, well, 51st or 52nd minute of this discussion. And 52 minutes is a long time to be talking sort of non-stop <laughs> about the same sort of stuff. Uh, you don't realise it until you actually sit down to do it. And um, it would have been easier if I'd had someone here with me to help me talk about this stuff. But of course, neither my two children who still live at home nor my wife were very interested in doing that with me. So I ended up doing it by myself. And that's where we're at. So, um, anyway, what do you do? And now we have the knock at the door. <laughs> uh, my eyes are dim. I cannot see. It's wonderful how they get to this part where he knocks on the door the third time. And says, hang on, you haven't given us time to hide yet. And of course, that's when Brian falls out the window and falls down on the boxes and has to stand up and says, uh, judge, not least you be judged. Or, and they're all looking at him saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> of course, at the moment, they're just trying to hide so that uh, the Romans are coming in here to check to see if there's anyone here, but they're all in their hiding spots and uh, beautifully hidden too with... Uh, just a, a drape put over their head or whatever it is, and somehow the Romans can't see them. The ridiculousness is still beautiful in this, in, in that regard, in that it's, it's not a pretense that they're actually you know, really hiding. It's just that uh, they're pretending to hide and trying to hide, uh, and the fact that the Romans obviously aren't smart enough to find them. <laughs> oh, you could get crucifixion, that's right, could be worse. Could be stabbed. That's right. Uh, stabbed is a painful, horrible death. <laughs> You're a loony. <laughs> uh, and of course, we get to the end with the crucifixion, and that's just wonderful too, isn't it? So there's there's so many statements made by the Monty Python Six here in regards to. Again, it's not having a, a crack at uh, Jesus himself or uh, that particular faith, but they they certainly are say, having a, a wider look at religion as a whole from this period of time and how uh, people are, can 
be easily led, I guess is the best way to put it, into uh, religious law. And, I mean, you, you look at uh, religion in this day and age, and, and just not trying to be necessarily uh, critical, even though uh, I may not uh, see the, uh, the sensible side of it, but looking at something uh, such as um, modern-day religions like Scientology, that, you know, honestly, are completely made up um, by an author who writes science fiction novels, and yet he's come and he's, he's created a religious, you know, without using the word cult, I'll say uh, cult, and people, famous people, influential famous rich people, have somehow been drawn under the spell of this particular religion. And what the life of Brian shows is how easily that could have been achieved back in this day for a start, let alone in the modern day and the number of religions we have this day and age and that kind of stuff. So this is, we've got to the point now, Brian's just fallen out the window and we have all of these preachers standing around uh, giving their own version of um, their faith and of God and all that kind of stuff. And so now Brian is going to do the same thing and he's not going to try and talk about God as such. Of course, he's just going to say something that's quite sensible. But suddenly all these people are going to start and follow him and become his followers and believe that he is the chosen one, that he is the Messiah because of his teachings or his particular <laughs> statements. And suddenly we've got what could be concerned, considered as a new religion being brought apart. And that's, that's one of the fantastic things about this film. It just shows up that kind of um, ridiculousness when it comes to um, people easily falling in behind someone uh, who passes themselves off as a leader. But this is Brian who is trying not to. He's trying to speak sense to these people that they should all obviously be individuals, which we come to shortly, and they are incapable of doing it. They must have a leader. They must have someone to follow. They must have someone to listen to. And uh, it's interesting, having just finished watching a, a documentary on uh, Waco and all the crap that went on there with David Koresh and that kind of stuff, how does, how does it get to that point where people are so blinded that they believe one person's word as being more important than anyone else's? Uh, so that, without trying to um, push you in any direction <laughs> in your beliefs, uh, and of course everyone is entitled to their beliefs, uh, that this the life of Brian shows that not only that it's it's fine to to uh, to have religion and to believe in a, a god or a messiah in that respect, but it just shows how easy it can be to actually have people follow you whether you like it or not and uh, <coughs> the signs that they may give as to whether that you know, as we're going to have his shoe and then his gourd and uh, he's, he's been taken up no no he hasn't been taken up there he is anyway we'll try and steer away from that uh, religious aspect of it for a bit <laughs> so Life of Brian, as we said at the time, when it was released, it had a lot of uh, problems with uh, 
people I would consider religious nuts, uh, saying that they were being uh, blasphemous in that kind of way for what they were doing when they were just writing a comedy. They had steered clear of the Jesus aspect and said, no, this is Brian. They weren't trying to say that Brian was Jesus. They'd obviously shown that at the start of the film. And yet, despite that, and despite a number of places actually banning the film from being seen, uh, it did amazing business. And uh, one of the things that isn't necessarily uh, overly popularised or, or actually uh, said out there in the, in the world is that the film was more or less made because George Harrison mortgaged his house. So George Harrison, the Beatle, who was uh, by this time very good friends with Eric Idle and was until his death, uh, had actually mortgage, put a second mortgage on his house to raise enough money for this film to be made. And that's an amazing thing. Uh, that he was so keen to see the result of this that he put up his own money to do it. And uh, as it turns out, he didn't make any money out of it. Uh, it was just that he put up his money to actually make the film. So that's fantastic. So here we are at the point of the film where we have the people who have suddenly decided we're going to be followers of Brian. And uh, Brian's just lost his shoe running away. And you should hold up your shoe as a sign. And no, this other person is going to say, no, no, this is his gourd. Follow his gourd. <laughs> and then yeah, he's going to give me your shoes. And here we have Marty Feldman again, which is just fantastic. He's going to have a lovely little quote here in a second that we should just pray. And everyone's already gone off on their own way. So they're all trying to find Brian and uh, follow him and listen to his teachings and hear his teachings and... Um, the way it goes. The last you in the heel of me! I didn't touch him! I was blind and now I can see! Alrighty, well, we've now reached the point where, yes, as I said, Marty Feldman's here giving his little speech. <laughs> and everyone's gone and he just walks away it's fantastic so we're into the last third of the film here and it's it's amazing that there's still so much of this film still to play out once we get to this point it's often you can watch the film and, and you get to this point where brian's been chased by his followers you sort of think oh well we're at the end of the last 10 minutes and in fact we're not we've still got a good half hour to go here and the fact that he comes across Terry Jones doing yet another one of his marvellous characters as the hermit who, who's holding, uh, holding fort here in his hole and he said, can I come down? And he jumps down on him and yes, anyway, as we're coming to this, we're following, following the, the followers as they, they chase Brian up the hill and Brian's come to this point and he's found a big hole and he's got the hermit sitting there doing nothing. <laughs> Can you tell me something? And Terry Jones is just ignoring him, trying not to say anything. Can't talk. And then I'm coming down there and I'm going to jump on his toes. <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh! No, damn, 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 damn. I haven't spoken for not a little. <laughs> and this. Yeah. What do you mean, be quiet? I've been quiet for not as old years. <coughs> oh, fabulous. Just wonderful, and I don't know I, how how does Terry Jones so easily? Sorry, just having a sip of my drink. How does Terry Jones so easily um, walk around bollock naked in so many things that he did for someone who was apparently 
like a very shy sort of Welsh kind of guy, he used to nude up a fair bit. And he does again here. Now, of course, the beard and the hair covers most of the parts for most of the time. But there are certain sections of this film where you see, you know, the bits and pieces of the male genitalia. And for someone who watched this at the first age of 10 or 11 or whatever, that was, um, well, that was very uh, enlightening, I guess is one of the ways you could put it. And of course, we see uh, a bit more of that uh, coming up soon with Brian and Judith. But um, for, you know, sort of a young 11, 10, 11, 12 year old to to see uh, those things uh, for the first time, really, I think it probably was in these films. Uh, it was uh, yes, uh, entertaining factor of it. But of course, we've got here uh, John Cleese giving his marvelous little spool here, and of course, and he's saying, "Oh, you are the Messiah." Da da da. And then the uh, woman who's with him says, "Only the Messiah would uh, refuse to say that they were the Messiah." And of course, yes, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, he is the Messiah <laughs> again. Perfectly portraying exactly how easy it would have been for people to start following each other uh, for on religious crusades. Well, unfortunately, I was about to say back in those days, but obviously that's not true. It still happens today. Uh, yes, the juniper berries. And there goes Terry Jones, bollock naked. Get away from my juniper berries. Oh, and I am afflicted by a bald patch. <laughs> And here we go. I was blind, but now I can see it all straight in and he can't see a damn thing. Oh, my goodness. That is just fantastic writing. Oh, and there's Terry Jones's genitalia, once again, covered in hair a little bit. <clears throat> they obviously tried to keep it covered, but it didn't work. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, and now we're going to hail Messiah, blasphemer. It's a... A non-believer, and now they're going to take Terry Jones apart. So much brilliance in this, because I feel sometimes that those who protested the loudest about the religious aspects of this film and the way that it portrayed uh, religion and uh, this kind of stuff with people following so-called messiahs, the ones that protested the loudest are the ones who actually did this and believed this crap. And that's the amazing thing for me in that, and obviously for these guys who wrote it, because they would have seen it as well, and that's why they wrote it. And yet, then they had to deal with those people who were so obviously shown up as incorrect uh, that they had to come out and they had to say things out loud on TV shows and radio and try to denounce the film and the way it portrayed these things. <laughs> And take him away. That's the end of you, Terry. Sorry, mate. Off you go. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. And that, you know, obviously, as a kid watching this, um, that kind of stuff didn't really come to me as much. Here we go. Brian's meeting Judith again. Uh, but as I got older and got more from it in that way, uh, it made uh, a lot more sense as to what the Monty Python team were actually trying to show. So here we come for the next part where we have Brian, he's here with Judith, and he's, they've obviously just spent the night together uh, because he is the Messiah. 
uh, and we're going to see a fair bit of nudity here, which uh, from most part, obviously when this was shown on TV in Australia, these parts were sort of cut a little bit, but in this day and age where we see uh, Graham Chapman hop out of bed here and about to go to the window, we see, oh yes, and there's his buttocks. He's going to open the window and beautifully think there's no one there and there's his penis. And there are all his followers waiting for him. And there we go. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. And now, of course, uh, there's Judith, and she's in the bollocky as well. We haven't quite seen her naked yet, which is a bit unfortunate. Ah, oh, and here's Terry Jones. Uh, <laughs> Say, what are all those people? <laughs> Drop by, swarm by, more like it. <laughs> Oh, and then she's gonna she's gonna get stuck in him, and then Judith is gonna come and say to protect him, and she's not gonna be wearing anything. And twelve-year-old me is just sort of thinking, "Wow, that's uh, pretty entertaining." So is the fact that Terry Jones is here saying, "Clear off." <laughs> There's no Messiah here. Uh, he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy. Oh, that's one of the great lines too, isn't it? Just fantastic. Yes. Now, here we go. Where's Judith? Come on. There she is. And Terry Jones is looking at her. <laughs> oh, gosh. And there she is. She is buck naked. And Terry Jones is looking at her up and down. <laughs> Oh, is this Judith? Mum, Mum, Judith. <laughs> oh, there she is again. Oh, fantastic. Oh, it takes me back 40 years. Anyway, and then we move on to the actual fun part of the movie. He's a very naughty boy. Just one of those great lines, isn't it? And you can't tell me that you haven't used that line numerous times in your life. And now they're going to butter, butter her up so the bride can come. You've got one minute. <laughs> I've got one or two things to say. Yes, tell us. Tell us both of them. <laughs> uh, and honestly, again, when it comes to writing and all of this kind of stuff, and Brian comes out here and says, uh, you are all individuals, you know, and you know, basically trying to get everybody to think for themselves. You don't have to follow people. You need to think on your own feet and make up your own minds and your own decisions. And, of course, we have, yes, yes, we are all individuals. And then, of course, one guy puts his hand up and says, I'm not. <laughs> oh, how do you come up with that stuff? Oh, I mean, it seems easy when you listen to it and then you've watched it and listened to it so many times but it's just must be, it's a, when you were writing it it must have been a light bulb moment mustn't it if you were writing that and, and have that occur <laughs> tell, us, tell us both of them <laughs> uh, and this is beautiful isn't it you don't need to follow me you don't need to follow anyone Yes, you are all individuals. Yes, all individuals. 
fuck? <laughs> oh, I'm not. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And surely, you know, and I know at the time, when there's a very good thing you can look up on YouTube if you haven't already seen it which is Monty Python versus Religion, which was a talk show that uh, John Cleese and Michael Palin went on uh, at the time this was released against two, I think it was the Archbishop of Can Canterbury, sorry, Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, and someone else who was very high up in the religious point of view at that time. And it's, it's an amazing back and forth on this TV show where both Michael Palin and uh, John Cleese just beautifully outplayed them outsmarted they were just far too intelligent this is fantastic isn't it too sorry eric idol coming and say excuse me if it's not a personal question are you a virgin back off and then i was like oh yeah, yeah she definitely is yeah <laughs> oh my goodness just just for oh, hello messiah uh, morning messiah here we go reg has come back into it good on you reg back in the save the day um so yes, you can look that up and, and see that back and forth. It's well worth your time if you haven't already seen it on YouTube. Uh, I think just type Monty Python versus religion and you'll, it'll come up and you'll be able to find it. And just listen to uh, the arguments put forth by the religious leaders and then the arguments that uh, the Monty Python team give back in response to that. It's just absolutely fantastic. And that's just because that's what they do in this movie. They're doing the same sort of thing. They're trying to explain that uh, you know, they're not having a go at, at all religions as such, but they are certainly showing that uh, people are, for want of a better word, dumb and sometimes decide that they are going to follow the wrong people and believe everything those people say without really giving it a whole lot of thought. Excuse me while I pause for my scotch. So yes, uh, we are moving into back a quarter of the film now. Um, really does take it out of you talking this long length of time with trying to talk all the way through and come up with stuff to say. Uh, because as I've said, I don't want to explain the film to you. If you're listening to this, you've already seen the film. Maybe not as many times as I have, and maybe more. I don't really believe there's anybody who's seen it more than I have. I don't feel that way. Um, but that's the thing. Uh, you already know what I'm talking about and you're listening to this for some perverse reason that you think maybe I can uh, offer something that you don't know about it, which is completely wrong. So we're back here, we're back with Pontius Pilate and uh, once again uh, we're talking about uh, crucifixions, crucifixions, how many crucifixions do we have today? And uh, oh yes, we've got to give out one person with it and uh, oh, my good friend Bickus Dickus uh, who is here which, of course, is played by Graham Chapman as well. And John Cleese, as the Centurion, has done everything right here in order to ensure that uh, there are no R's in any of the names so that uh, Michael Palin's character of Pontius Pilate can't uh, say a wajah or any of that thing. And we get to the point where we have lots of other S's and, of course, we work out that uh, the speech impediment that uh, Biggest Dickers has, has to do with his S's, or Ethav, as he ends up being that way. So, again, they've utilised all of that just beautifully and able to 
continue to play off what could have been just a, a one-scene uh, little payoff with uh, Pontius Pilate's uh, speech impediment. And now we've uh, improved it by bringing in a second person with a different speech impediment to help out as well. Ah. <laughs> uh. So we all know that uh, beyond Life of Brian, uh, we eventually got The Meaning of Life uh, a few years later, which was a different film again from this one. It was very much basically just a sketch film. Uh, and that was unfortunate. And I think there was no doubt that when they talk about how the, the writing went for this film and how the writing went for the following film, that there were obviously complete differences that... This was obviously very successful. They all became very big names after this, and even before this with uh, uh, certain films and the series that were done. Um, and then uh, The Meaning of Life became basically just a sketch film because they had no idea of what it should be about. And uh, in the long run, although a lot of it is very funny, the whole film itself is probably fairly disappointing, and it ended up being the last film that they all did together. Uh, and written and performed together by them. So in many ways, this is their masterpiece, uh, The Life of Brian, because uh, The Holy Grail is fantastic as it is, and there's no doubt about that, but they were able to uh, become actors in this film, and that was, I think, this more than anything else. Like the, the, uh, the Holy Grail was more or less just those six in different roles with a couple of, you know, a few extra people who came in, Whereas this obviously had the six of them in different roles, but it also had many other actors who played different parts. Well, we had Judith and we had uh, uh, obviously Marty Feldman playing different parts. And I think it, it became a film rather than uh, a lot of sketches. So here we go. We're lining up for the crucifixion part now, which again is another fantastic role. Michael Palin here again asking, crucifixion? Yes. Uh, line on the left, out the door, line on the left, one cross each, <laughs> you continue on, and then again, we it's the twist here again, isn't it, where Eric Idle comes up, and of course he says, ah, uh, no, nah, freedom actually, <laughs> I said, I hadn't done anything wrong, and I could just go free, oh, well, off you go, and uh, of course, no, nah, nah, not really, I'm just pulling your leg, it's crucifixion actually, <laughs> I think, oh my goodness, how do you come up with that? And that's 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 typical Eric Idle, isn't it? Just he, the characters that he plays, just just be oh no, no freedom actually, yeah. And then we continue on, and of course more, yeah. And now we're going to have uh, okay, who will you have me Willis? And of course uh, Willis Wodger. <laughs> Very well, I shall Willis Wodger. <laughs> What about Waterwick? Yeah, he's a wobber. <laughs> oh, and they just and the crowd. The the great part about this scene is just the crowd absolutely pissing themselves as they go, and then it cuts away back to the crucifixion scene where uh, where Brian's trying to say no, no, I shouldn't be done and whatever, and the part goes between Michael Palin and Terry Gilliam. But, and you cut back to this, and the crowd are just rolling around on the ground, just absolutely pissing themselves to death. And it's just so brilliantly done. 
until they finally decide that, oh, yes, we need to release Brian. But uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, aren't I? Oh, there is no, we have no Awaja. What about what are we? What about Waterwick? <laughs> ah, sorry. I'm drinking while I should be talking to you. Or maybe you've enjoyed that little break of 10 seconds or 15 seconds without me talking, which would be completely understandable. In fact, I'm surprised if anyone's actually gotten this far into it. Because I honestly didn't think I would be getting this far into it. Because I'm now... Oh, well and truly an hour 20 into this that's uh, it's something <sighs> and I've run out of scotch which is going to be a bit of a problem I think going forward yes anyway um, what else can we talk about uh, we know I don't want to get ahead of ourselves in the film so let's not try and talk about that kind of stuff how about um, you have to accept the fact that when, when, when this was made so we we already had Michael Palin and Terry Jones had done um, their, uh, oh, what was their TV shows that they did? I was going to say Rutland Weekend, but the Rutland Weekend was Eric Idle, uh, in which case he actually did an episode called The Ruttles, which is basically a piss take of the Beatles, which was very good. Um, Tomlinson's School Days, what was that? What TV show was that in? Man, I can't even remember now. It's terrible. Anyway, uh, and then of course we had uh, Faulty Towers that John Cleese had done. Uh, so they had all sort of done different sort of TV shows and different movies by the time they got to this point. So once they did this and, and, and it took off and became so uh, popular and successful, then their careers went even further. And that was perhaps what really, uh, was part of the reason why I think the Monty Python didn't really do anything great again. Because they were all uh, doing their own things. And of course, to try and be wholly successful on your own and not have to uh, do it as a, as a part of a troupe uh, to try and prove that you yourself were brilliantly funny and smart rather than just say, well, maybe it was someone else in the group who was doing it is what probably helped. And like Terry Gilliam, obviously, rather than actor become a, a brilliant director, directed so many other amazing films. Uh, as well so they all did their own things and uh, it was more or less I think this this film was the culmination of where they were all going from Monty Python into their own stuff and then they came back to do this and it worked so well and they went off and did their own stuff and it was very hard to get back to their own stuff again so yes we've arrived here now where we are at the uh, crucifixion and uh, Eric Idle and Terry Gilliam playing their parts. Oh my God. He's mama. Mm, he's mm, mm, he's mm, mm, mad. mad. He's mad, sir. And then we move on and they call him out and they finish it. And then the, those two characters who couldn't say anything suddenly go back to just talking normally. Oh, my goodness. It's just so funny. Oh, dear. Bloody Romans, no sense of humour. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. So here we are, we're rolling around on the ground, going crazy through uh, laughter after uh, Biggest Dickus has uh, just uh, sent, uh, he wanted to send Phantom 
and uh, Saskatchewan and all. <laughs> oh, hang on. And he's got, oh, no, my pilot's going to have his word. He's like, ah. And then Judith runs up here and she says, release Brian. And they <laughs> Terry chose Terry. Oh, that's a good one. Hey, release Brian. Release Brian. And then John Cleese says, of course, he says, oh, oh we do have a Brian, sir. Oh, well, I shall release Brian. Um, this is lovely, too. We're going to take our walk through the streets. Uh, crucifixion party. Of course. And then uh, again, here we go, Terry Jones. Can I... Can I burden your load, brother? He takes the cross off you. He does a runner. <laughs> Terry Jones has to go and get oh, crucified instead. And then they get out there and he just says, oh, this isn't my cross. Uh, if he comes back, he says, oh, yeah, if he comes back, yeah, we'll let you down. No worries. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So many different parts of this film when you watching it and, and trying to explain it. So many different parts that are so brilliantly written and then acted and put together and, and the work that must have gone into making this. It's, look, it's only 90 minutes long. And you think of films these days that are made that are, you know, everything seems to be two hours minimum. And if it's not two hours 15, then it, oh, well, it's, it's not a good film. Except for the fact that at two hours 15, it's the last 10 minutes are all just bloody credits. It's all just rubbish. Now, the credits in this film take about 30 seconds at the end of the film. <laughs> and, you know, it's done. And these days, oh, you've got to make sure everybody's name's on there. It's just ridiculous. And they say the length of the film is 2.15 or 2.20, but it's 10 minutes less than that. Here's Judith. Release Brian. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> oh, there they fall on all over. That's it. That's it. Very well. There will be no one released. Uh, wait, sir. We do have a bond. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there we go. Good work, pilot. He says, I shall release Brian. And so here we go. The race is on. Can we save Brian from, from certain death? <laughs> now, what I'm trying to work out is because all these people say this terrible stuff about how this is... Uh, making a mockery of Jesus and all this kind of stuff. Well, I don't see. There's no Jesus being put up on the bloody on the cross in this movie at all. He's you know everyone else is up there, but Jesus isn't. So how can we make a mockery of Jesus if he's not actually there? He only appears at that start of the film and the Sermon of the Mount. Ah, <sighs> dear, dear, the things that some people make up to go along and work out. But anyway. So yes, here we are with uh, Eric Idle and Terry Gilliam, unable to say anything. He's, he's gone, sir. And then they just go, back, well, carry on with your story. And they start talking. <laughs> just little things like that, which is just so funny and so brilliant. Here he goes now. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. So yes, um, and of course, you know, People sort of said, oh, they're making a mockery of crucifixion and this kind of stuff, but are they Are they really? I mean, I think the best part about it is when Eric Idle says, once they get up there and Eric Idle's character just says, uh, you're being rescued, are you? And Brian says, uh, what do you mean? And he just says, oh, yeah, lots of us get rescued. We've, we've got a few days up here before we start to die. <laughs> My brother usually rescues me. <laughs> 
And I wonder if that was the case. I wonder once they put everybody up to be crucified, that there were guards there the whole time to make sure that people didn't escape or weren't rescued. Um, It's not something that I've ever bothered to try and look up and find out, but... uh, I've always, I, it's a, I think it's an interesting thing to think about because, uh, yeah, they're just tied up. And it's not like with Jesus, who apparently was nailed to the cross um, because uh, people were bastards. But uh, oh, I don't know. Even if you were nailed to the cross, surely you were. And he seemed to die very quickly. Is that, uh, you know, it was the same day, wasn't it? Like he was put up on Good Friday. Is that, I'm sure that's correct. And and then he was nailed to the cross, and but he died that afternoon at three in the afternoon, or it got dark, and that's when he died. But anyway, I'm moving into religious territory here and trying to remember stories from my youth from scripture and uh, not remembering them very well, I'd say. I love this part, though, when they were trying to segregate the different people. He said, oh, I'm a Samaritan. I said, I thought this was a Jewish section. <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to be crucified in the same areas. And then, of course, the guy says, says, right, put up your hand. If you don't want to be crucified here, put your hand up. Of course, no one can put their hand up because they're being tied to the cross. And he's like, right, good. (laughs) Oh, dear, oh, dear. Fantastic. Of course, now we're seeing the scenes where we have all the different groups on their way to uh, where everyone's being crucified. uh, And we're assuming from watching this that all these different groups are coming to save Brian in one way, shape, or form. And of course, why wouldn't you? Because he is the Messiah, or he is a very important person, part of these these groups, and uh, you would think that they're coming to save him, to uh, you know, do the right thing and help uh, Brian return to their group, and they can continue on with all of their uh, running around and trying to kidnap Pilate's wife and things like that. And that's not quite exactly what happens, is it? <laughs> And here they come, and uh, Reg is about to stand here, and he's going to say that, uh, you, Brian, you are a wonderful martyr for our cause, and we will never forget you, and then <laughs> walk away. Uh, and the round of applause, which is quite polite. A round of applause, that's wonderful. <laughs> and then he's going to yell at them as they walk away, calling them bastards. And, of course, then we're going to have uh, also John Cleese turn up and say... Uh, where is Brian of Nazareth? I have a, uh, a, a call for his release. And of course, uh, that's what Eric Idle says. I'm Brian. And then everybody's Brian. And of course, who hasn't used that line in their life? I mean, it's uh, it's obviously taken beautifully from um, Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. Who, who hasn't watched Spartacus? Here's another historical film that uh, all of these films look like and everyone's standing up saying I'm Spartacus I'm Spartacus and of course we've got on here and said I'm Brian I'm Brian I'm Brian and so is my wife and then Brian, Mrs. Eric I gets I'm not really Brian put me back up <laughs> uh, that's lovely so as we get to the end of the film uh, everything sort of culminates beautifully and as they've said uh, and and must have been when you're watching the film you're wondering how are they actually going to finish this once you get to the point where brian isn't rescued uh, and has several people not rescuing him which is of course uh, the uh, people's front of judea uh, and of course the, then when he's uh, been given the release but eric idol's taken him and said uh, hey, i'm brian which he's doing right now i'm brian of nazareth yeah <laughs> what him now and so everyone's saying, 
on Braun. <laughs> Love it. Um, so they come down, and of course Judith turns up here shortly, and then we have the uh, Crack Suicide Squad turning up as well, and they again, Crack Suicide Squad, why have they been brought in at all? What the hell's going on with that? And you're wondering how the hell are they going to finish this film? How what what? How do you write an ending to this? Do we have a bit of Gilliam sort of uh, expertise, or do we have, which is still probably wholly unsatisfying, the way that the Holy Grail finishes, which is basically they're running down the hill. There's going to be they're going to try and take the Castle Arg, and it actually has a police vehicle turn up and they all get arrested because they killed the narrator earlier on in the film. So they had to work out what was going to happen here. So here we go. The, uh, the Judean People's Front Crack Suicide Squad. And Brian thought, you beauty, they're here to rescue me. <laughs> no, we take out our swords, we open our little thing near our heart and we stab ourselves. And as they say, as they go down, saying, that'll show them, won't it? They're all dead. Uh, you silly sods. And then here comes Judith. And Judith turns up and Brian thinks, you beauty, finally, someone's going to save me, for goodness sakes. But as she says, Reg just explained it all to me, how wonderful it is that you're going to be a martyr and I'll never forget you. And then oh, she goes and Brian says, for fuck's sake, are you kidding me? And then, of course, Brian's mother, Terry Jones, turns up and says, Oh, I always knew you'd end this way. <laughs> You've gone and broke your mother's heart. <laughs> oh, and then she's going to go off as well. And that's just about it for Brian. He's got no one left. They've all bloody left him up there. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, here we are. What's going to happen? How does it finish? Uh, first time you watch it. And then it's just beautiful. Cheer up, Brian. And this is, you know, the greatest ending to a film of all, isn't it? It's it's interesting that uh, he's he's got the Jude, he's got the Jesus hair on too, Eric Idle in this film, and that's very long. And of course, he wrote this song especially for the ending of the film, and it's become one of the greatest songs from a movie ever written. Absolutely brilliant. And, of course, you know, well, let's put it this way. My, my mother's already said that when she has her, her funeral or whatever it is that we have for her when she finally kicks the bucket in about another 70 years, this is what's got to be played there. And it's obviously, it's got to be one of the most played, if not, it's got to be the most played song at a funeral or a wake in the world since 1979. Because how could you not have this being played at your funeral? You won't be there, you won't see it, and you won't hear it. But this is what you want. Because it says everything, doesn't it? It says everything about life and death, as it turns out. And it's become the shining moment of this film by finishing this way. Everything that's come before this leads to this point, And then Eric Idle sings this song. And you walk out and you just think, wasn't that fabulous with a smile on your face and a laugh? And you just think, that was fantastic. Even though all these people are on the, on the crosses, on the crucifixes, 
and it looks like they're all going to die. And Brian's had such a shit life. But, you know, always look on the bright side of life. Uh, just just a magnificent way to finish this film and so much more redeeming uh, than, like I said, the, the end of the Holy Grail and um, and for that matter, the end of The Meaning of Life and, and anything else they did. They weren't really good at writing endings, were they, as it turns out. They tried to leave all that stuff to Gilliam. So this is Eric Idle's shining moment. It's what he's known for. It's the title of his uh, autobiography, uh, and the whole scene is just just beautiful. And the song, of course, you all know the song, and you're singing along as I'm talking, I'm sure. Especially when you back, <laughs> head back and forth and whatever. Uh, cheer up, Brian. Worst things happen at sea, you know. <laughs> so there we go. We've reached the end of The Life of Brian, Monty Python's Life of Brian. And it's still... Such a fantastic film, and in many ways, okay, it, it you know what, it may have dated, and that's sort of why I think my kids don't want to sit here and watch it with me. Actually, the reason they don't want to sit here and watch it with me is because I talk all the way through, like I've just done for you, and I quote lines before they come up, and and often quote great passages of lines before they actually occur, and they. Don't particularly enjoy that part. I don't understand why they don't enjoy that. I mean, I sit with my mates when we used to watch it through high school time and time again, and we would talk all the way through it saying exactly the same stuff. So I think that's a bit poor on the part of my own kids. However, um, thank you for tuning in if you've made it this far. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed it. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed watching it again in a different way while I can just talk to you through it. I hope that what I've been talking about has been interesting for you because I don't really know exactly what I've said over the last hour and 40 minutes or whatever it's been. Um, so I hope some of it has been interesting. I hope some of it's been as humorous as the film, which there's no chance it could be. Uh, and maybe it's just a different way for you to watch the film as well. And if you did enjoy it, I hope you'll pass this on to other people as well and maybe they'll listen to it and enjoy it as well. Anyway, beyond all that, thanks for spending uh, whatever day it is or whatever evening it is with me talking about the life of Brian. And uh, on top of all that, I hope that you uh, will check out other episodes on the podcast and that you most definitely will come back for the next episode of this wonderful podcast, Exciting Times, on Thoughts from the metal cabin. Jeez. have been listening to a Metal Cavern production.